If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Clinical Conversations. My name is Jim Parry. I'm a member of the Trainees and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr Anna Olson-Brown, who is a consultant medical oncologist at the Clasbridge Cancer Centre in Liverpool, as well as former chair of the Trainee and Members Committee. She's chair of the Clasbridge Cancer Centre Immuno-Oncology Committee. She's got lots of other roles which would probably take up the rest of the podcast if we went through them all so we'll skip those if that's okay that's of course fine hello so today we're going to be talking about immunotherapy in cancer and hopefully a bit about how that presents on the general take and so if we start can you tell us a bit Anna about kind of what is immunotherapy what what sort of drugs they are of course so I think it really kind of harks back to how we think about treatments in cancer care so Normally, when we talk about oncology treatments, we talk about chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And over the last 10 years, our world has got a little bit more complicated, I would say. And the newest group of drugs to join our arsenal of treatments is this group of drugs called immunotherapies. And essentially, the way that these drugs work is they reactivate the person's own immune system's ability to recognise and actually cause death of their own cancer cells. And it all works back to the fact that we know that immunosurveillance is something that happens in all of us all the time. So our immune system stop us developing cancer in an almost continual cycle and we know that when people develop cancers that those malignant cells develop resistance mechanisms to avoid detection by the immune system and the way that the immunotherapies work is that they essentially break those mechanisms of resistance down and allow the immune system to once again be active toward the cancer. Now there are a number of immunotherapies that are coming out and will probably become commonplace within the patient population over the next five years or so but at the moment we focus on a group of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors and those drugs are all monoclonal antibodies they're all given intravenously and they all are described when you think about the drug names if you have a patient coming in who's on oncology therapy they say they're on a drug if they are on a monoclonal antibody that ends in a MAB at the end and they have an L in the middle of the drug name if they're on cancer therapy you can be fairly assured that that is an immunotherapy until you can reach for Google to check and the reason knowing about these drugs is relevant for you if you're on the acute take or you're you know you're sitting in a GP surgery or wherever you are is that the side effects that we see from these drugs are quite distinct and different to uh, other cancer therapies, but also the potential for benefit from them is quite different. So we know that if we can train a person's immune system to recognise their cancer, that actually because the immune system has a memory, it means that that um, immune system can continue to recognise that patient's cancer. So for the first time ever, for patients, particularly with metastatic disease that previously would have been considered incurable and also that have poor prognoses, that actually people get enduring responses. So in the case of melanoma, we've gone from a less than 20% one-year overall survival to around 50% six-year overall survival so we've completely and that's, that's in the metastatic setting that's and that's in the metastatic yeah. setting so there are people that you would automatically look at and go well this person's probably got a prognosis in six months actually we've completely changed that so i think the, the things to be aware of when somebody lands in front of you and they say they're on one of these newfangled drugs is to think about do we actually know what the prognosis is from this cancer treatment and should we get the oncology team's advice about it and also this patient could get some toxicities that are different from neutropenic sepsis and nausea and vomiting which is what we're used to seeing 
coming through the front door for people on chemotherapy. Brilliant, thank you. That's really good. So I think um, talking about the, the success in melanoma, and that's one of the, the kind of early settings where we've seen really good success. And I think that's led to us using them in more settings and more disease groups, hasn't it? So I think the other thing is that we're going to see we're going to be using them a lot more. So you know, non-oncology doctors are going to see a lot more of these coming in with the side effects and things. So it's something that we're going to be aware of. So can you tell us a bit about kind of where it's being used now? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, the reason immunotherapy sort of came around was because we'd sort of run out of our benefits, big benefits that we're gaining from therapy and other drugs. And the reason goes back to the fact that the immune system is involved in most cancer development. And so that potentially means that these drugs can be used in in the majority of cancers. And what we found is, although the outcomes aren't necessarily quite as good as we saw in the melanoma setting, they're still getting really good benefits. Patients are receiving definite survival benefits and quality of life benefits. So they are now used in well over 15 different cancer types. And lots of different subgroups within that. And they're also used in different settings. So we started very much in the metastatic setting where people had metastatic disease with poor prognoses. And actually over time, that has changed. And we're now using it both in the maintenance setting after we've given radical treatment with the aim of cure. And also in the adjuvant setting where people have had an operation and actually we're giving drug therapy to try and prevent the, the cancer coming back. So the, the impact on patients is beneficial across all of those settings. And so not only are we seeing more patients with different cancers, but actually different risk benefit ratios. So again, you know, we have to be aware of the fact that if people are presenting like that, then actually if they are, if they've got issues related either to their cancer or their side effects, we need to be thinking about whether we should be escalating them and how we manage those actively because they actually could be having curative treatment. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy interested so i suppose we should mention the names of some of the drugs i know you you're l in the middle and mab at the end is pretty much foolproof i've not come unstuck with it yet so do you want to tell some us of some of the drug names yeah. Yeah. So, so they're really easy to say there's the yes, yeah. that intent- intentionally some of the drugs you may well see are um, ipilimumab nivolumab pembrolizumab atezolizumab devalumab and tremolimumab are the main ones you may see. There is also a valumab and simiplumab. So as you can see, the L and the mab thing really does work. People often then say, well, what about infliximab? Which is not unreasonable. And we, <laughs> we do sometimes Almost see a gotcha. Yeah, it, it is almost. <laughs> but So that's why I say if, if somebody's on oncology treatment and that's the drug that they have, then it's a pretty foolproof rule. Yeah. But yeah, so there you go. They really are easy to say. <laughs> <laughs> and so the other thing I was going to ask about was we're also seeing these drugs used in combination now with mm-hmm. cytotoxic chemotherapies mm-hmm. which can complicate matters of toxicities and things and so mm-hmm. we'll possibly talk a, a little bit about that in a minute so i suppose that's a good point to get onto the side effects and the toxicities of these drugs so can you tell us a bit about the, t- the toxicities you can yeah. we, we see with these drugs of course so the reason I think we're all quite aware within oncology about these drugs and the toxicities is, as I said before, they're quite different. And the reason that the side effects are different is essentially when we're giving these drugs to activate the immune system, it's a slightly non-specific tool. So we reactivate the immune system, but it's not necessarily focused at that activation on the cancer. We sort of rely on the person's body to do that for them. And so not infrequently, the activated um, cytotoxic T lymphocytes, which is the, the cells that the drugs help activate, can become a little bit overactive and and also can target tissues that we don't want them to. So you get inflammatory type side effects, which look very much like autoimmune diseases, which is obviously completely different from chemotherapy. And the, the reason that's really relevant is because the drug activates the immune system and then that immune system can do whatever it wants. Unless we actually actively treat the side effects, they won't stop and they propagate themselves and they get worse. So whereas with chemotherapy, if you take the drug away, time generally speaking is the great healer and they need other things like sometimes fluids and antibiotics, but generally speaking, the person will recover themselves. 
in these drugs, the patient's own sort of host mechanisms can't do that. And so we need to think about immunosuppressing normally with the form of corticosteroids really quite soon. And if you've got somebody who's got a mild or moderate toxicity, actually waiting, they probably won't get better. And if anything, they'll advance to severe toxicity. So intervening earlier in these patients is really quite key to re- recovering these quicker. What's the sort of time frames when we expect to see these side effects? We can see them any time from when the drug is first given to the patient. So we do see them sometimes within hours of, of the patient receiving the drug, although that is less common. The most common time to see side effects is within the first three months of treatment but you can see them well down the road so these treatments are given for up to two years and we know that there is certainly a potential for getting the side effects even after you've stopped giving the drug and for years after you've stopped giving the drugs the longest i've seen a toxicity after stopping immunotherapy is two years after the patient has stopped and the reason is the same so the immune system's been modulated and so the, the, the potential for it to, to become rogue and, and attack other tissues doesn't stop when you stop giving the drug so yeah basically any time is sort of a, a but the most common time is sort of during the first three months of treatment. Yeah, so I think my rule of thumb is if a patient's had immunotherapy and comes in with a problem, then an immune toxicity is on my differentials until proven otherwise. I think that's absolutely the way to approach it. And I think the other thing is that, so if anything inflammatory is there, then yes, absolutely. I would always suspect that it's the drug because actually more often than not it is. And also I think there are certain circumstances where you have, where it is better to assume it is the drug than not. So for example, people who get toxicity in terms of colitis they often will wait quite a long time to receive steroids because of the fact that you want to make sure they've not got an effective diarrhea and various other things unless that patient has got significantly clear risk factors for an effective diarrhea and they've had an immunotherapy i would always treat them as if they were an immune related adverse event and there is an io induced colitis rather than waiting a long time before starting treatment i think one of the things we should mention is the fact that any organ is susceptible to having one of these toxicities. So the most common things we see are colitis, hepatitis, skin toxicities and endocrinopathies, but literally any organ or tissue is at risk. And other things, rarer things, but more serious things we see are pneumonitis, myocarditis and neuritis. So it is very broad. So if something looks inflammatory and they've had an immunotherapy, I would have it as quite a high on differential on my list of things to think about. Yeah, I think that's often when we talk to patients, we say things like you can have any body part and put an itis on the end of it and that can happen. It's really is can, a real range of things, don't we? So. Yeah. With understanding it can be an inflammation of anything, maybe if we just talk a bit about the common ones that we see the most of. So you mentioned the colitis, so that would mm-hmm. present as a diarrhea. Yeah. And then the pneumonitis you mentioned. Yeah, so pneumonitis has been given as quite a challenge, obviously, in the last year. We've had a lot of reasons to think that other, other things in respiratory settings is, is going on. And one of the main groups of patients we treat with immunotherapies are non-small cell lung cancer patients, um, and actually, luckily, small cell lung cancer patients. So, you know, there's already a lot going on in the lungs already. So there are some things that are interesting. So they get ground glass change on CT. So we CT people with breathlessness quite with a, with a very low threshold, actually. So whereas before you would probably just do a chest X-ray, now we would recommend doing a CT. They tend to develop a cough and it tends to be a dry cough, not really productive. And they tend to get ambulatory desaturation. So they can be quite well at rest. And as they, with small amounts of exercise, they will develop quite significant breathlessness and, and desaturate if you do sort of ambulatory saturation. So pneumonitis is a challenge. It's quite reassuring because obviously we can now use steroids to treat COVID and carrot steroids to treat pneumonitis. So even if you're not quite sure what's going on and you haven't quite got to your oncologist yet, you can treat them with steroids either way. And it's a reasonable, a reasonable treatment. The reason pneumonitis worries us is we have recognised over time that actually patients can get quite 
significant information relatively quickly. So if you don't treat them as steroids, they can be quite difficult to resolve. And we do aim and see the majority of immune-related adverse events will resolve with the right immunosuppression, but it can take days, weeks, and sometimes months to get better. So early recognition is really important. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? So the other common toxicities we see are dermatitis. So it's interesting, so there's a whole range of different dermatitis presentations that we see. So some people do get a sort of a, a traditional mobiliform rash and look very much like a typical drug toxicity. Other things we see are psoriasis and eczema, we also see pemphigoid and pemphigus, and we have seen SJS and TEN. So it, again, if they've had an immune therapy and they've got a new onset skin rash, then absolutely it could well be the immune therapy. We do think there's probably a potentially increased risk to hypersensitivity to other drugs as well. So it's not to say that if they've got other drugs that may well and are known to cause rash, that won't be contributing. But certainly the immune drug itself may well be causing that rash. And we use different things to calm it down, but the rule of thumb is to start them on steroids. And that's going to be a bit of a recurring so theme. Currently, <laughs> yeah. um, any, any of the other toxicities that you want to specifically mention? Yes, I think there's a couple. So I think there's some rules of thumb, first of all. So the thing is, these patients generally speaking look quite well. So they don't tend to be as unwell as maybe their predominant symptom would suggest. So if you take colitis, for example, they tend to have high frequencies with bowels open sort of eight to 10 times a day, but they don't tend to get very many abdominal symptoms. They don't tend to get an elevated CRP, but then they, if they're not treated, they can progress and perforate quite easily. So they tend to be deceptively well. So I think again, in winter pressures, in, you know, in A&Es and AMUs, they will look like your wellest patient. So it's just being aware that treating the severest parameter is a really important thing. And, and we do grade these toxicities and there are a number of protocols which we'll touch on i'm sure in a minute but if there is something about this patient that that isn't right treat the bit that isn't is the most not right so if we talk about specific toxicities hepatitis patients generally are completely asymptomatic and they feel very well but they can have transaminases of, of well into the thousands and sometimes they get hypervaluaginemia which is which is sometimes isolated so again they may look well, but if they've got high numbers, those numbers need treating. And I think the other toxicity that I increasingly talk about is myocarditis, partly because I've seen, and actually all of my colleagues that work in IO toxicity have seen an increase in the number of patients are experiencing uh, myocarditis. And it doesn't tend to present with fatigue, with chest pain or classic symptoms of cardiac toxicity. They can present in heart failure but they can also present with significant and new onset fatigue. So we're being quite cautious about people and the potential for myocarditis. And we don't have, we have, again, have a low threshold to check their troponins and uh, their pro-BMPs if they are presenting in that manner. So it's just to be aware of, again, because it has a high mortality rate and again, needs early treatment with high dose immunosuppression. Brilliant. So I think that's, again, a, another recurring theme that we're picking up, isn't it? It's important to recognise these early on the appropriate investigations and start the treatment, which is, is going to be immunosuppression. So I suppose that's a good place to move on to the management of toxicities. So you spoke briefly about grading. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so oncologists are a bit traditional and we're quite focused on clinical trials. So we use a very a very non-specific tool called the CTCAE grading uh, guidelines, which basically grade any toxicity from one to five, one being very mild and five being death. And so we've lifted that grading and applied them to immune toxicities. 
the easiest way to know what that means in relation to the patient sitting in front of you is to look at either your local or national guidelines. So most oncology patients will be able to tell you they're on immunotherapy. They may not be able to tell you much more. Most of them, there are many centres in the country now where the patients carry an alert card. So it's always worth asking if the patient is what treatment, if they know what their treatment is, they should do, but they don't always. And have they got an alert card that they've been given by their cancer centre? Because that will help you quite a lot. It's then worth looking at your local guidelines. If you can't find any local guidelines, then the two go-to places are to look to Google something called the Yukon's Initial Management Guidelines, and that's got a section on immunotherapy toxicities, or also Google the ESMO Immunotherapy Guidelines, and they've got international protocols. The good thing about all of this, whether they're local guidance or national or international, is the initial management is pretty much identical with all of them. So there are some local tweaks in most of the local protocols, but essentially they say the same thing. So we break our toxicities down into mild, moderate and severe. And then we use the then the definitions are embedded into the guidelines. So you don't need to know what they are. You just need to be able to look them up and compare that to the patient site in front of you. If a patient's got a mild toxicity, generally speaking, you don't need to do anything apart from inform the oncology teams that they've got a toxicity and that they were going to follow them up. And different teams in the different parts of the country do things differently. So just being aware of how to inreach into your oncology services is quite useful. If there's somebody's got a, a moderate toxicity, then generally speaking, we start with oral corticosteroids. But unusual for oncology, we use oral prednisolone rather than dexamethasone. And we normally work on a concept of about a milligram per kilogram, which roughly equates to about 60 milligrams of prednisolone as a starting date. And is there a reason why we use prednisolone? So there are a couple of reasons why we use pred rather than dex. One is that actually these conditions most closely mimic autoimmune diseases. So the endocrinopathies look very much like autoimmune endocrinopathies. Then we get arthralgias that look like rheumatoid arthritis. We get um, hepatitis that's like autoimmune hepatitis. And we get colitis that's very much like inflammatory bowel disease. So because all of those um, conditions are treated with prednisolone it makes the most sense to use the same treatments because we're looking at similar but not the same pathology also you can tailor and wean prednisolone much more closely so you what we've found with these patients is you can't give them short sharp doses of steroids like you would do for a copd exacerbation that doesn't work you need to give them sort of a, a two or three week dose starting at about 60 milligrams of prednisolone and weaning over the course of two to three weeks there are weaning guidelines in the yukon's guidelines specifically there are weaning guidelines about how quickly to bring down the prednisolone but it just allows us to tweak it and at low doses tailor it to the patients so that's why we use prednisolone Spoken mild probably needs just inform the, the oncology team. Moderate severity toxicity is probably going to need oral prednisolone at about a milligram per kilogram, but look at the guidelines. So what about people with more severe toxicities? So in patients with, with severe toxicity, we would normally look to admit them. And not every centre does, but I think a rule of thumb, if you're seeing people in a general medical take, then you should look to admit them. And again, as I said, they may look quite well, but they've got a severe mark parameter within the grazing. And then we would look to giving them IV methylprednisolone. And I think um, I'm normally starting at a dose of two milligrams per kilogram, although again, some local protocols are a bit different. The thing I think is really interesting is we don't use a lot of methylprednisolone in the world of medicine. It's quite an unusual drug and we do use really high doses. So I think there's always, always a little bit of anxiety about using it. Patients will often ask if this is going to affect their oncology treatment and not unreasonably in the middle of an A&E, in the middle of a busy take, you're not going to know the answer that it doesn't affect the impact it doesn't impact negatively on their treatment having a toxicity that's not treated will very much negatively impact on them so it is fine to treat them in the acute setting and it's fine to use those doses of methyl pred it's quite standard in these patients and it's something that oncology teams throughout the country have got a reasonable amount of experience with now so 
because um, that's what we do. And then we tail them down to oral and then we weed. Okay, so yeah, so it's quite a big dose of steroids, isn't it, for the severe toxicities? It is. Which sometimes can make people a bit nervous, but... Yeah, and understandably so, and I think it makes patients nervous as well. I think the other things to warn patients about, as you always will do when you're giving really high-dose steroids, is if you're seeing them in, in late in the day, they're not going to sleep. It's going to make them feel a bit irritable. And also we have to watch out that, that we don't send their glycemic control off. So even if they're not known to be a diabetic because of the high-dose of steroids that we're using, quite often they can become hyperglycemic. So there are some really good guidelines from the UK Chemotherapy Board, which again, you can Google, um, which tell you how to manage steroid-induced hyperglycemia. So worth a look at those if you, if you need some guidelines and you haven't got an endocrinologist around to ask. Perfect. And so how long are these patients generally on steroids for? It's a good question. It's really variable. So I would say rule of thumb patients are nearly always on at least three weeks worth of steroids. And then it depends very much. So some patients can just have their standard tailor and they will their toxicity will resolve and they will be fine. Others flare and get reflares of their toxicity so they can be on um, steroids for much longer. It's really important that the patients are monitored by somebody because otherwise what happens is they reflare and nobody notices and then they become quite unwell again. Also, because we use prednisolone, there's a lot of five milligram prednisolone tablets for them to get their head around, and particularly in a weaning dose. So patients often get a little bit confused. So making sure they've got follow-up with someone is really quite key. And often that relies on you at the front door referring just to the acute oncology team and they will sort out the rest in terms of who's actually going to do that. But just thinking about who's going to follow that patient is quite important. The other thing is some patients will flare and steroids won't be enough, even at high doses. So some toxicities, we go up on the dose of steroids in the first instance, but I wouldn't expect that to be done without quality support. But we do sometimes use other immunosuppression agents. So the things we use commonly are mycophenolate, mofetil and tacrolimus. But we also use things like cyprosporin, azathioprine and methotrexate. So you may well see oncology patients coming in who've had toxicity on quite a lot of these drugs. You may well get recommended that we start them. So understanding things like tacrolimus level and things, the oncology teams will advise as well as some allied sort of specialist um, organ teams, but they are often on other drugs, um, which seem a bit unusual for oncology. Patients. But those would be only started under oncology guidance. That's yeah. steroids. We're happy for very happy for you in, in sort of the acute setting to start steroids. It's more if you're on a ward and you're looking after somebody with a toxicity and you, you have a sort of conversation with the oncology teams, don't be too surprised if they recommend these other immunosuppressions to go alongside it. We do also think about things like infliximab and colitis and various other drugs. So that would always come from you would never be expected to do that on your own. But it may be something that is suggested by the team that you're talking to. How often are people on these other immunosuppressives, would you think? So it's a good question. So I think normally when you're starting with the immunosuppressants like these, that there is an expectation that people will be on them for life. In reality, most patients with these types of toxicities won't be on them for the long term. There are a very small number, probably less than 1% of people that get toxicity that are on long-term immunosuppression. So what we tend to do, and different centres do this slightly differently because it's not yet completely standardised, what we tend to do is wean down the steroids. If they've needed an additional immunosuppression, we'll carry on with that while we're weaning the steroids. And as long as it looks like that immune therapy toxicity has resolved, we'll then, two to three weeks later, then start bringing down the other immunosuppression with a name to get them off all immunosuppression sort of relatively quickly, depending on what that toxicity looks like. It is really worth being aware of the fact that it's quite bizarre. If you can manage to resolve the toxicity completely, it is actually quite rare for the patient to experience the same toxicity again. Ironically, they then can experience other toxicities affecting other parts of them. So it's not uncommon for a patient to have had hepatitis, colitis and a thyroiditis which is a bit unusual and often you sort of it's quite surprising that they don't get the same toxicity even if you give them another dose of immunotherapy. 
The other thing is about endocrinopathies. So endocrinopathies are worrying for me as an oncologist that can't sort of lay consistent eye on my patient because they can become quite unwell in a very vague way. So patients can present with endocrinopathies being very, very fatigued, but actually lose their adrenal function and their thyroid function very quickly. That is often not resolvable. So patients need either steroid replacement using hydrocortisone or thyroid replacement using levothyroxine. And if they have become insufficient, they are unlikely to resolve and go back to normal. So they tend to need long-term replacement for those side effects. So they'll be on lifelong thyroxine for example or exactly that and so i'm not sure if you mentioned actually about how common these toxicities are so when we're starting patients on immunotherapy how likely are they to get the toxicity it depends a little bit on the immunotherapy that we're using basically we divide it grossly into whether you're using one immunotherapy drug or two or more in combination if you're using one immunotherapy drug it's between one and four and one in five people that get significant toxicity that will require review in hospital and if you're looking at patients treated with two drugs it's anywhere between 50 and 60 percent of people who will get acidic toxicity at some point in their treatment which is why it's always worth remembering the benefits that we talked about at the beginning because the toxicities are quite common in honesty, then they're quite comparable with the toxicities we see with chemotherapy. So oncologists are quite used to this level of toxicity, but it is certainly not an insignificant number. Yeah, so it's not not a rare thing. It's something we, yeah. we see fairly commonly, isn't it? Yes. Okay, great. So I suppose we'll start wrapping it up. We, you mentioned some resources where people can get additional info. Should we mention those again? Yeah, absolutely. So there are quite a lot. So it's always worth looking at the SPC guidance for the drug. So if you know what the drug patient's on, then that will tell you what toxicities to expect. So that's easily findable. Also, the ESMO guidelines for immune-mediated toxicities are good. The UCOMS initial management guidelines are good. There has recently been published just last month, ASCO, which is an American society, but they publish guidelines on toxicity as well. And they have a really good section on the sort of the management of the steroid-related side effects. So one of the things that I think is really becoming very apparent the more treatment patients we treat is that the side, we all know the side effects of steroids are horrible, but actually we've had patients that are on steroids for quite a long time. So thinking about osteoporosis, glycemic control and antimicrobial cover are quite important things. There's some good guidance on the ESCO guidelines about how to manage that. Good, and hopefully some friendly acute oncology teams and on- oncologists who are, yeah. will be more than happy to advise on these, I'm sure. Yeah, so one of the things I say a lot is that there is always an oncology team on call wherever you are. Please do reach out to them. We don't anticipate you having to look after these patients on their own. They are complicated. You often have to think about what their prognosis is, what the reason the immunotherapy is being given for, and also what the toxicity is and how we best treat it. So please don't feel you have to manage those alone. Absolutely reach out to your acute oncology teams or your sort of central oncology registrar or consultant on call. They will be more than happy to answer your questions and they are learning about this all the time as well. So I suppose the the take-home points from what I've taken would be that we're using a lot more of these drugs. Side effects are fairly common. Mm-hmm. Time frame of side effects is unpredictable and the side effects themselves can present quite strangely and unpredictably. Mm-hmm. And it's important to recognise them early get help and start treatment. Anything else you wanted to? The only other thing I would comment on is something you brought up earlier was about combination therapy. So Mm -hmm. it's now not uncommon for patients to be on two or three different types of oncology therapy at the same time. So quite often they'll be on chemotherapy and immunotherapy and sometimes some oral tablets as well, just to be really confusing. So I think the rules of thumb, if you see those acutely, is stop their oral tablets it could be a chemotherapy or an immunotherapy toxicity and get advice quite early 
if they've had chemotherapy very recently in the last few days, the last week, then it's likely that the chemotherapy bit is driving their toxicity. If it's longer ago than that, then it's more likely to be an immunotherapy. But again, it's not uncommon to see these combinations. It feels a bit crazy that they'll be on so many drugs. And uh, again, go back to reaching out to the oncology teams early so that you know how best to treat them. Well, thank you very much for that. So that's us finished. So if you have any feedback about this, please, you can either tweet us or go to the RCPE website and please check out the other podcasts in the Clinical Conversation series. Thank you.